Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Voices from the Front Lines. If it's three o'clock on a Tuesday, you know where you're at. Um, today on the show, one of the segments we'll be talking about is the closure of 10 California prisons by CURB, which is a statewide coalition of which the Strategy Center is a part of. Today we have Amber Rose, who's the executive director of CURB, and we'll be having a conversation about incarceration and prisons and how to close 10 prisons. It is also the midst of the KPFK fund drive, and you know how important it is to the Voices from the Front Lines listeners and to me and Eric. And we want you to, you know, just take a moment and see what you can do to help KPFK. We obviously want you to contribute as generously as possible to continue to not just have KPFK survive, but to thrive. But do as much as you can. Call 818-985-5735. Amber, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, And it's actually Amber Rose. That's my first name. Okay. Amber Rose. (laughs) Thank you. So, Amber Rose, tell us about who you are. I know we're going to get to the the whole issue of closing 10 prisons, but obviously you're an organizer and I'm an organizer and we like to start with who are we and how did we come into this work? Yes, thank you so much. Um, I, yeah, so Amber Rose Howard, I'm, I'm from Pomona, California and uh, been out in Southern California my entire life. Uh, finished high school here, went to college here. But in the middle of high school and college, I unfortunately uh, had my first touch with the law enforcement. Uh, I was arrested for a serious violent crime and convicted at the age of 18. And and, and during that process, uh, I had a lot of different supportive systems around me that kind of helped me navigate this uh, experience, I think, a lot differently than most Black people navigated. Uh, Particularly, I mean, I was bailed out by my family and I got support from a private attorney and I had my entire community showing up to court and to the DA and to the judge really just organized and advocating for me. So um, that experience really just exposed a lot of what the prison industrial complex is and how it impacts, especially the black community to me. Uh, And so that's how I kind of got propelled into this life of organizing against the prison industrial complex. That is crazy and fantastic. Uh, Crazy that at such a young age you were incarcerated, but really fantastic for that, that community of support that, you know, to be frank, not everyone has, right? And so I think that is beautiful that you had that community. Um, so I, I know you said you were incarcerated. How, how did you go from being incarcerated to then 
fighting to end the whole entire incarceration uh I don't know what to call it regime <laughs> yeah seriously um well I um I spent time in county jail here in San Bernardino County met a lot of different folks inside which I think is what kind of opened up my mind about this system um you know because you know, the truth is lots of folks, when they think about who's incarcerated, we often think about who deserves to be there and who doesn't, right? There's this false dichotomy of some people are deserving, some people are not. And uh, just being inside, meeting so many different folks, meeting folks that are dead wrong, meeting folks that were innocent, meeting folks that did something, but not necessarily the charges that were brought against them. I mean, just a whole range of different people who are incarcerated, all different kinds of people. Um, and so thinking about all of those things, when I got out, I really started to, to just boil around in my mind, you know, is this the right way to address harm? You know, thinking about the, the, the system of public safety that we have now, which is, which is largely driven by punishment and corrections, um, is it's supposed to reduce harm and increase safety. And when I asked myself, hey, does this system actually do that? The answer was just no. You know, and then after being incarcerated, it's like, no, no, you, it actually causes more harm, more suffering, more pain, more detriment to community. Um, and so I came across an email at my boring desk job one day, and um, it was for a, um, it was for like a fellowship program at a New Way of Life reentry project. And it was to teach women how to be organizers. And so I applied. And uh, it was great because the only requirement, uh, instead of being required that you don't have a felony, you had to have a felony in order to participate <laughs> in the program. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. Um, and really, that's how I got introduced to organizing through A New Way of Life with Susan Burton, um, her team there um, back in about 2015. That's really great. We we've been, we worked with uh, Susan Burton a lot. And in fact, uh, Barbara Lott Holland, who's our associate director, has worked more with Susan Burton through a lot of different coalitions, which is really fantastic. Yes, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, in thinking about the whole prison industrial complex in California, I was obviously doing some prep for the show and looking through the people's plan, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but I don't know, I, I, I started thinking about the prisons in California and what are the prisons? And of course, my, the first one that came to my mind was Soledad because after Soledad Brother and reading Soledad Brother mm -hmm. about George Jackson. Um, and then I, real, I didn't quite remember, so I had to go look it up to see which prison it was that George Jackson was assassinated and of course, it was San Quentin, which is one of California's oldest prisons. And they keep saying that one of the most dangerous prisons, um, which I don't fully understand what that means, um, depending on who it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, but I know California has a terrible, long history of incarcerating people. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that history? Oh, yes. I mean, I think what's most fascinating to me about the history of incarceration here in California is that, you know, pre-70s, pre, you know, peak of the Black Panther Party, which a lot of that organizing happened, you know, in Oakland, right here in Cali, um, you know, pre all of that, we had about 12 prisons in the state of California. 
um, and they weren't over capacity, uh, which 12 is still too many in my abolitionist opinion. Of course. Of course. <laughs> but and, that, and that's compared to how many today? How We have 35 prisons, well, excuse me, 34 prisons. And that kind of growth happened over just a couple of decades. I mean, very quickly. Um, and how that happened is they changed lots of the law, the, the penal code, which is the section of the law for crime and punishment. Lots of new crimes were added and lots of new schemes for punishment were added, including sentencing enhancements, the three strikes law, life without parole sentencing. I mean, they just piled it on in there. And so we got, not only did we get up to 35 prisons at the time, we got to um, almost 200% of the design capacity for 35 prisons. So we filled up prisons up to 200% of their capacity, of the overall capacity. This uh, means that individually, damn, damn near every single prison was over capacity. Uh, so where the federal government had to come in and say, uh-uh, y'all locking up too many people, you gotta get rid of, you gotta reduce this population. So that's how California really started paying attention to our carceral problem is that the federal government had to step in. That's how crazy it got. <laughs> um, yeah. So now we're you're we're actually at 34. We uh, the the state finally closed one prison, uh, Dual Vocational Institute in Tracy, uh, in last year, and it's set to close another by 2023. Uh, but we know factually that the state can close more, and that that should be the state's answer to the failing infrastructure of the Department of Corrections. That's fantastic. I think, you know, it. I, I, I obviously see it as a holistic system of trying to organize the system at different ways, right? And so Curb, I know, is trying to close prisons. We're trying to stop the criminalization of Black and Latinx folks mm-hmm. on the buses and trains in the schools, trying to stop the school to prison pipeline. You know, others are trying to stop, um, you know, just the, the incarceration of Black and Latinx folks getting while getting traffic stops and in the Mm -hmm. streets in their neighborhoods and so uh just the i began reading the people's plan i just think it's really fantastic it just goes point by point race racism and environmentalism and you're spending too much and you're incarcerated and everything's wrong tell us a little bit about the plan (laughs) Yes. So I think, and thank you so much for reading it and for the acknowledgement of this, this uh, very detailed report. Um, You know, CURB members have, you know, CURB was founded uh, in 2003 with the idea that we need to close prison. So it's always been our mission to do so. Um, And then of course, after kind of things shifted with the state and the feds came in and said, release folks, that was back in 20, about 2011. Um, And since then, we just kind of wanted to catch on to this momentum of what's all been happening. So We've been reducing populations. Folks have been getting free. Um, some folks, uh, some laws have been decriminalized on the ground, where you know Black and Latinx folks have received very um, uh, incremental uh, changes, right, that protect them from law enforcement. And so this this report was just, you know, as we're attending budget hearings at the state capitol, doing our budget advocacy, we're listening to legislators ask the CDCR for a plan to close prisons because. The CDCR continues to come into budget hearings and say, hey, we need, you know, $4 billion to fix all of the failing infrastructure. Prisons are falling apart, blah, blah, blah. And the state's like, well, we're reducing population so drastically. Uh, Couldn't we just close some of these prisons instead of like spending all of these millions of dollars repairing them? 
give us a plan. And over time, CDCR just did not come up with a plan. So the Curb Coalition said, you know what, how about we write a people's plan and give it over to them since they need some direction and let's try and push that forward. So that's what this is and that's how it came about. Uh, then let me ask a question there because I know that there's something in the plan that talked about at some point California wanting to decrease its overcrowding, but instead they sent people to actual county prisons. Yes. Uh, do you know anything about a little bit about that? Yes, and that's one of the tragedies of how California handled the federal mandate to reduce our populations. The state said, and this is this was under the governorship of uh, Jerry Brown, and he said, you know what? Uh, let's actually just shift people from state prison to county jails who have the low, the lesser offenses. Um, and then we'll expand the time that someone can spend in county jail. We'll go from one year to 25 to up to 25 years. So they shifted a lot of the state's responsibility to cage human beings on the county, which also came with checks. That's how the state started kicking down funds to counties for jail expansion and jail construction. Um, and in Los Angeles, for particular, in particular, which I know a lot of listeners here are there, um, that's how the plan for Men's Central Jail, uh, and the replacement for Men's Central Jail, and another jail were actually going to be built. Wonderful organizers on the ground, including Justice LA, which Curb is a part of, um, really put you know pulled together with the community and pushed back against that, which canceled that con- those new constructions and Men's Central Jail should actually be being closed. Um, in the near future. But yes, that's exactly what happened. The state kicked the responsibility down to the county instead of actually releasing people, which was a problem and and not sustainable. Absolutely, absolutely. And for those who don't know, there is an active fight still that while the LA County Board has um, voted to close Men's Central Prison, they have not done so yet. And there's we're still waiting for a plan Mm -hmm. and financial, like... um, I don't know what to call it, a financial plan of figuring out how they're going to move step by step to close it. Um, and so that's an active campaign. Yeah, you know, I, I, one thing, I want to revisit this idea of most dangerous prisons, because uh, in doing a lot of research, you know, I know that San, San Quentin is on the list of the top 25 most dangerous prisons in in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I think it's a contentious question because mm-hmm. coming from the right, it could mean, well, those are the most, quote, dangerous people, which I think is BS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't curse on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think coming from our side of the house, I feel like that can mean something else um, in terms of most dangerous. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, the the kind of rating that you're looking at definitely is right-centered, and I think it's kind of naming the harms that individuals experience. So it's pointing to the, it's it's pointing to scale the prison and how dangerous it is based on the people there, which we think is not fair, because it should actually consider all of the state's influence on what that danger looks like. It should consider the environmental impact and how unsafe water is and how unsafe the land is, right? Right. Um, How unsafe the actual facility is. Uh, It should consider the harms that come from CDCR employees, right? We know for a fact, because people inside communicate with us, uh, that the, the guards, the majority of guards that folks encounter are harming them verbally, physically, you know, 
Um, so looking at what those dangers look like, that's what it should consider, especially, you know, after what we just went through in the past couple of years under the pandemic right. and how folks were just, I mean, totally unprotected. CDCR employees were the ones coming in and outside of the prisons, able to carry virus back and forth from different prisons, refusing to wear personal protective equipment, refusing really to just think about the folks in uh, that carceral community. Um, and so when we're looking at how dangerous prisons are, those are some of the things we should consider, not looking at folks. I mean, because honestly, human beings locked in cages, you know, the fact that folks control themselves, are organizers, are helping themselves, are bettering themselves is incredible. It's fantastic and amazing because they're doing that on their own, right? There's, there's not a lot of support actually from the state to get people there. So people in cages, you expect them to be on their worst behavior, right? So it's like the fact that people are not always on their worst behavior is great. So definitely to that, I'm sorry for the long answer. But definitely, No, that's great. You know, we should definitely be considering these other things that make prisons dangerous. No, that and and that's actually what I was alluding to. That mm-hmm. I, as I'm reading the report and they're saying most dangerous, I'm like, well, people have been complaining about the conditions in San Quentin for the longest. They've mm-hmm. been complaining about the conditions at Soledad and at so many of these institutions that are literally, even before COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. there was a whole pandemic in the prisons where Absolutely. people are getting poisonous water. People yes. are not allowed to shower. People are not allowed to go to the restroom, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And yes. so I definitely wanted to highlight that. And, you know, for me, it's, it, is, it is heartbreaking because, you know, it's the whole concept of out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've never been to prison or you don't have a family member that's been to prison, which I highly doubt in the state of California, <laughs> Exactly. Um, you know, it, it, it becomes this uh, case of out of sight, out of mind, like you don't see it. And so you don't feel moved to do something about it. And so in that uh, state of mind, for folks that want to do something, what can we do? How can we help? Yeah. So if folks are interested in plugging in with us, we're so happy to accept your help. Um, Our coalition is made up of over 80 organizations across the state. So if you're not already involved with one of our member organizations, which is listed on our website, we'd love for you to contact us to get involved. You can reach out to myself, which is Amber Rose at curbprisonspending.org for specific details when actions are happening and coming up. Um, But also we have actions coming up very soon, uh, including a rally and press conference at the state capitol. That's going to happen May 11th at 9 a.m. on the west side of the Capitol near the steps. Uh, What we're doing is gathering together to respond to the governor's revision of the state budget for 2022-23. What we'd like to see is more prison closures. We want the governor to announce that more closures are going to happen. So attend this rally with us. uh, Speak out with us. um, You know, raise your voices with us. And then from here, we're always uh, sharing out toolkits where you can participate in actions, speaking out in the public safety uh, hearings, uh, the budget hearings. Um, We always have opportunities for folks to do organizing and base building with us. Um, So, you know, if you have time free, uh, we'd love to get you plugged in. That's fantastic. Um, And then here's the last thing. I I know that everyone is thinking about this. (laughs) 
how in the world are we going to close 10 prisons? It's a, yes. it's a huge monumental task. Yes, it is a huge task. But let me start with this. It is absolutely possible. We have, we're relying on our own data, but also the state's own legislative analyst office has put forward reports that say, listen, we can at least close five in the next five years. They're putting together numbers that show the cost savings that state would receive in the general fund, the ongoing savings. I mean, it's absolutely possible to get it done. Now, what it's going to take to get done is all of us. We have to make sure that we're talking to the governor's administration, pressuring their office to let them know this is the direction that Californians want to go in. We have to make sure we're staying in contact with our state legislators, also making sure that our budget committee members know that this is the direction to go in. And we have to keep the pressure up in the media. We want to make sure that folks understand what prisons really are, what they're truly doing, and that this isn't the answer to public safety. We need to make sure that we're doing that. And you know what? Then we can get these prisons closed. We've already we've already gotten started. So I think folks should feel encouraged that we're, we're in the right direction, that we can do this. That's fantastic. Well, Amber, I, I, I'm definitely glad that we had you on and we'll definitely have you back um, for different upcoming events and calls to action. And for folks, um, once again, you can get involved in a few ways. Obviously, on our website, VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com, we'll have links and uh, information for everything that was talked about on the show but also go to curbprisonspending.org right now. You might choose to sign up for the mailing list. You might choose to contact them to get involved. We need your action right now. Remember Voices from the Front Lines. It's not listener-sponsored, it's organizer-sponsored, and we want you to take action. Amber Rose, uh, thanks for being on. We'd love to have you back um, and to really delve deeper in around the conversation around prisons with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'd love love to be back on. All right, Voices from the Frontlines Warriors, it's that time again. It's time to help KPFK make sure we survive and thrive. Call 818-985-5735 to give a generous contribution today. As I've said many times on the radio, KPFK is one of the very few centers of the movement's voice and movement's action, revolutionary action against the system and against imperialism and capitalism and all oppressions against our people. Let's continue to fight this system and win at every point that we can. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that we're on air and that alternative visions for the way this world runs is heard by as many people as possible. Call 818-985-5735 today to contribute to KPFK. Thanks. So hey everybody, this is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. You've already heard a conversation with Curb about the crisis and the budget. And now I want to talk to you about Roe versus Wade, women's abortion rights. And obviously that Voices from the Frontline wants to play a, a stronger role in this struggle, which is now 
going to define, uh, among other things, this period in history. Um, we start with the sort of obvious that women have rights and the right to control your own body, a right for a woman to control her own body, is the core of this. So when the right says, well, it's called right to life. The first thing I want to say is, with really respect, is I think we need to change the language for the alternate to say the right for a woman to control her own body, the right to abortion, the right to stop being abused by men in the home, the, the right to, uh, you know, and so forth. Because by using the word choice, I've been thinking about it a lot, and, and it you don't win a moral argument around the concept of it's a choice. One side is saying it's not. It's a moral imperative and you're saying, well, women can have a choice. It sounds like we're not as impassioned about it, and we're not putting you on the spot. In the 30, 40 years that I've been following this debate since Roe versus Wade, the Democratic Party has been really pathetic on women's rights. I mean, you know... Joe Biden will get up or Obama will get up in a speech and in the middle of nothing will say, and I want you to know that I will protect Roe versus Wade. And then all the women Democrats applaud hysterically. He doesn't say that the country is surrounded by right-wing, misogynistic men who want to put women back into the home, which is their castle and, frankly, their house of horrors, uh, you know, I've been spending the, the week with my wife, Leanne, on a lot of the reading that she's been doing about feminism and patriarchy and imperialist patriarchy. And even though I knew it, uh, you know, Maria Mee says that there's, you know, that capitalism is built on three levels of super exploitation. The, uh, the super exploitation of the colony, the super, super exploitation of women, and the super-exploitation of nature. And I would argue women especially inside the colonies. So if, in fact, capitalism is by nature a rapist concept, then we know what happens inside the home. We know that men force sex on their wives, and for many years there were no charges that a woman could make against her husband. We know it's been very recent since women even had the right inside a marriage to have any economic rights. There's virtually no concept of rape inside a marriage because it's a male-constructed situation. So if rape is legal inside the marriage and... If bombarding your uh, female partner with baby after baby after baby, it should be obvious that women can never get out of the home, can never have a life, let alone a job, let alone any independence. So without a national child care program, or even with one, the central question of women's liberation has to be the sanctity of the woman's body against those who would violate her rights. 
for those of you in the abortion rights movement, at least for the other people who have said I'm with abortion rights, not the right to choose, I hope this is helpful to just that we have to have a conversation about how the Democratic Party has tried to downplay a woman's right to abortion because they're constantly trying to get that white male vote while also getting the black vote, while also getting the women's vote. So what they do is they say, black, you get it. I'm not going to say it again. Women, Roe versus Wade, you know I can't say it more than once, but you got this. And now let me talk about economic issues for the white crazy man. You know, and that's how the Democrats have always tried to get elected. When they get elected, they have no mandate for civil rights because they didn't fight for one. They have no mandate for women's rights because they didn't fight for one. They go on record, but when was the last time we saw a big Roe versus Wade introduction of a bill by the Democrats? When did we see a Democratic president run on women's reproductive rights and run against the concept of uh, right to life? You know, they asked Joe Biden, well, when is a baby born? When is a baby born? And I'd say, well, when does a husband start oppressing the wife? When, in fact, are women so oppressed in the family that they have so many children? What gives a man a right to just have a child, even if the woman wants contraception? Why are you focusing on the life of this fetus when you don't care about the fetus when she grows up? But no, the Democrats never go on the offensive because, God forbid, you offend the white working-class male who is the holy grail of the U.S. electoral system and why we're in the white settler state and why women's rights are always subordinated to men and male chauvinist misogynistic rights. So this has been going on all along, but you have to understand that it's sort of a war where only one side is fighting. The right wing has figured out that the right, their right to beat up a woman's body, their right to imprison a woman, because I will not call it right to life, their belief that of male rights against women, their rights of misogyny must be upheld, and you have to overturn Roe versus Wade that simply said that a woman can have an abortion without any legal consequences because... Even when I was in the civil rights movement, uh, not even, this was 1965, a very close friend of mine oh, told me a story about an abortion she had. and it, it, it was horrendous, horrendous and terrifying. And this was a white woman in, in the civil rights movement of middle-class background, and she went to Philadelphia to have it. And it was terrifying. Imagine for lower-income black women and for Puerto Rican women and for all lower-income women, uh, all the horrible things that were done and all the things that women did to try to stop a pregnancy that we know, drinking acid, uh, coat hangers, and other things that are almost too hard to talk about, except that if we don't talk about them, bro, you know, this uh, right to attack a woman is going to continue.
So hey everybody, again, this is Eric Mann and we are on a fun drive. So as I talk about women's reproductive rights, women's rights to protect their body from male oppression, women's rights to have or not have children, women's rights to have a life. Talk about right to life, how about a woman's right to have a life? We want to raise money for KPFK. We've been given a lot more support from management to say we want you to do your regular programming. So, you know, during fund drives, there's always been 818-985-5735, 818-985-5735, with a heavy emphasis on premiums, which are legit, and they do help people give money to the station. So the station is saying, we will let you go ahead and run your show, and if, as long as you continue to make requests for donations. But it's really important that people therefore make donations because I don't want to do a lot of fund drive shows. Now, we're in a fund drive, but we're talking about prisoners and we're talking about women's rights. We're not mainly talking about premiums, but let me tell you the premiums. The first for $250,000. If anybody gives $250,000, call me privately, by the way. I'll give you my cell. But for $250, there's the amazing portrait of an artist about Paul Robeson. It's funny. I I was just looking at the beautiful four DVD set. Uh, Leanne and I have uh, ordered this twice. You know, we're watching a show about QVC with... Uh, Vanessa Bayer and you also have to personalize it so you have to say Leanne and I have ourselves had the Paul Robeson and we bought it twice because we love Paul Robeson and sometimes when we want to give money to the station we like giving money to the station to get that terrific premium the second premium is my book any of my books but we'll focus on playbook for progressives the 16 qualities of a successful organizer. And the more I read it, the 16 qualities of a successful person, because as Channing said, a lot of the Channing Martinez, that a lot of this book is about character. It's not about skill. You know, like to be a good listener, to be a group builder, to be a good political educator, be a good fundraiser, and there's chapters on how to be one, to build the base and never walk alone, to be a good organizer. So the point is, it's a great book. We've sold almost 8,000 copies. It is going to go into a third printing, I hope, with a new introduction. So check that out for $100. And those will be the two premiums for today, all right? 250 and 100 And for 300 you tell them that Eric said that for 300 they could get Paul Robeson and Eric Mann's book, playbook, okay? So that's the premium. The main issue is during fund drives, I want to be able to talk to you like this and then move on. I want to read you this article from NPR. So we've had the fund appeal. The cool thing is if you could call right now, because sometimes if I want to move on, this would be a nice time to go 818 985 5735 to make a $250 contribution. 
to make a $100 contribution, to make a $300 contribution, and to make a contribution at any level. Because whether or not you get the premium, the, the station itself is your primary premium. So this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. Please call 818-985-5735 and make your most generous contribution and tell them, I'm not just supporting KPFK, I'm supporting Voices from the Front Lines, Eric Mann and Channing Martinez. Okay, so I myself wanted to get my facts straight because there's a lot of confusion in my own mind about what's going to happen if. So this article is called, Here's What Can Happen If Roe v. Wade is Overturned. May 3rd, 2022, with NPR as the uh, news cycle by Joe Hernandez. Okay, nearly one in four women in the U.S. are expected to get an abortion at some point in their lives, according to a 2017 study. If Roe v. Wade is struck down, as a leaked draft memo from the U.S. Supreme Court suggests it could be, it will have a major impact in states across the country that have already signaled their intention to restrict or ban abortion. I want to come back to this Supreme Court leak, but let's stay on subject. States where abortion likely would become illegal if Roe v. Wade is overturned. 18 states have trigger laws to ban abortion if Roe is overturned or have pre-Roe abortion bans still on the books. Additionally, some states have laws not currently in effect banning abortion after six to eight weeks. So we're looking at North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Idaho, Wisconsin, Missouri, Kentucky, West Virginia, Michigan, which is shocking, Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, and Utah, all already have laws on the books banning abortion or making it very hard to get one and would be moving in a very aggressive direction if Roe v. Wade is overturned, which it will be because they tip their hands and they have the votes. According to the Guttmacher Institute, a research group that supports abortion rights, 58% of women of reproductive age, or 40 million, leave in states that are hostile to abortion. So 58% of women are living in a state that's hostile to their right. Now, the Supreme Court verified that the document published by Politico is authentic when noting that draft opinions can change before a final ruling. Ha, ha, ha. Chief Justice Roberts has ordered an investigation into the leak. But the draft opinion about overturning Roe would not ban abortion nationwide, but instead allow states to drastically restrict or even ban abortion, which advocates for reproductive rights say could have a seismic consequences for the country. Here's what a future without Roe v. Wade would mean. And then again, so it keeps being said. Roe v. Wade was a decision, I believe, in 1953 by the Supreme Court that said simply that a woman has a right to a legal abortion. 
and the state has no uh, interest in this and has no right to impose any penalties for anybody taking advantage of this medical procedure, which is what it is. More than 20 states have laws that could restrict or ban abortion soon after the Supreme Court. One type of statute called a trigger law is designed to take effect after a Supreme Court ruling. Some states already have pre-row abortion bans on the books that haven't been enforced. Other laws express the intent of states to crack down on abortion if permitted by the Supreme Court. See, the Supreme Court has said that it is illegal, theoretically, to deny a woman abortion. But they haven't said that states cannot pass horrible, horrible laws making it miserable to have an abortion. That they haven't said you must keep your hands off a woman's right to reproduction. So the states pass horrible laws that make it miserable to have an abortion, but are not yet legally allowed to prohibit it. For example, after Texas enacted its roughly six-week ban on abortion last year, some residents began to get abortions out of state. In the final four months of last year, Planned Parenthood clinics in states near Texas reported that on nearly 800% in abortion patients from Texas compared to the same period in the prior year. Women of color will bear the brunt of further abortion restrictions. According to the Associated Press, black and Hispanic women, Latin, Latinx women, get abortions at higher rates than their peers. Women of color also experience higher poverty rates and can have a harder time traveling out of state for an abortion, the AP said. Limits on abortion access can lead to negative long-term health effects. A major study from the University of California, San Francisco, found that women are harmed by being denied abortions. The women's surveys who gave birth had economic hardships that lasted for several years, were more likely to raise the child alone, and were at higher risk of developing serious health problems than those who had abortions. Some blue states are already taking steps to enshrine the right to abortion in state law. From Colorado to New Jersey, Democratic governors have signed laws protecting reproductive rights, announced their intention to be able to provide abortion services to people who live in states where the procedure is restricted. Now, just a couple more thoughts. I mean, the first thing is, we have to, of course, in California, in New York, in so-called blue states, figure out every possible strong, strong legal language, and I'm going to try to learn more about this, that even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, which says it's not a federal right, the states that do support women's uh, abortion rights have to have ironclad legislation. The second thing that we have to be honest about is people in California, a lot of women in California are not able to take care of abortion services. We have to, uh, there are still economic and cultural and other reasons why many people are not taking advantage, including, including, of course, hostility and brutality by men. So we don't want to act like California is this wonderful, you know, center for women 
when women are badly mistreated throughout the United States. So we want to talk next week to some of the abortion rights organizers in LA to get much more, uh, including maybe peace over violence. The second thing is I think we want to be able to pass legislation with massive funding for free abortions for everyone because I don't know the level of the funding and there will be fights when, when you know, when the right wing, because it's not like California is such a great state, folks. Or, you know, this is one U.S. imperialist white settler state. Let me break it to you. So what I'm getting to is when the bills start piling up, you can hear it already. Why are, why are these people from Texas coming here? You know, why are these people from Mexico coming here? I mean, this is not a nice state. So the point is that if, in fact, a lot of women are coming from Texas, they're going somewhere else. So I'm looking. They can't go to Louisiana. They can't go to Oklahoma. They can't go to Arizona. Right now, it looks like they can go to Florida, Kansas, but you get it. It's going to be very hard to figure out where are you going to go. And then you're all alone, and you're traveling somewhere, and you don't know. Anyway, this is just terrifying. That's my main point. And I am sorry that I have not paid more attention to this. I followed in my own consciousness in terms of women's liberation. Obviously, I focused on the development of women's leadership. I've also spent a lot of time dealing with issues of battery against women in terms of the main thing I've been thinking about. But I do want to do more work on abortion rights, and we want to do more on voices from the front lines. So if you're interested, if you know groups that are doing great work, send me an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and uh, contribute to KPFK, 818-985-5735. Channing, you had something you want to say? Yeah, the last thing on what you're saying on abortion is the other article I was reading was by NPR as well. And, you know, it is the difference between the right, I'm sorry, it is the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans that Mitch McConnell is already calling for folks to uh, pass a complete ban on abortion That's nationwide, right. right? So while this leak, which has not been passed yet is saying that uh, it would overturn Roe versus Wade, meaning states' rights to choose, right? McConnell's already moving the entire party to say, why don't we ban it altogether, right? And so I don't think I see that type of initiative from the Democrats, not that I see very much difference between the Democrats and Republicans, which is a whole nother conversation. Well, I think for a lot of the, there are a lot of, um, a lot of wealthy women who have focused on the Democratic Party because of women's rights. There are a lot of women, feminists, who have focused on the Democratic Party because it is better on women's rights. Uh, there are a lot of Latina and black women who voted for the Democratic Party because they perceive it to be better on civil rights. But what you and I are both saying is there don't seem to be constituencies inside the Democratic Party that are willing to take on the Democratic Party, which is very strange. I mean, you know, you look at the Dreamers. Right. So what happened with the Dreamers? 
is the dreamers were not Democrats. They were, you know, young Latina and Latino and Latinx people. Some of them were tied with somewhat the Democratic Party. And they went to the office of, uh, of priority in the Obama administration where there's a place you can go if, if you got enough going on that they'll talk to you. So one of the top leaders of Obama spoke to the Dreamers and said, look, he cannot pass what you want. To give all of you essentially a, a certain conditional citizenship right now is not legal. He doesn't have the, the legal authority to do it, and it's a political disaster. And they said, okay. They went into Obama's offices when he was running for president and started sitting in. And they said, Obama is the deporter-in-chief. Obama is bad to women, bad to immigrants. All of a sudden, Obama passed the DREAM Act and the DREAM Executive Order. So I'm saying to the sisters in the reproductive movement, only from the outside, I see no real struggle with Biden, which is what Channing and I see. Of course it's taking place inside, but all the social movements in the United States have to be to the left and independent of the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is faced with a crisis, that this is a misogynistic country, which is why they don't fight for women's rights. It's a racist country, which is why they don't fight for black rights. They signal to black and to women, I got you. But don't ask very much of me because then I will look like I'm bad and I got to look good. So don't do anything to make me look bad. It's a horrible cycle. I'm going to be spending the week talking to a lot of women in the women's movement, in the reproductive movement, who I know are grappling with these questions. And we'll have some people on next week, that's a promise, who will talk more about strategies for the women's movement, strategies for the abortion rights movement. But Channing and I wanted to get started today because we've both been thinking about it a lot. So this has been Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. We will be back next Tuesday at 3. Jenny, could you tell them about the podcast again and how they could listen? Absolutely. So go to voicesfromthefrontlines.com and you can listen to all past shows we are on every popular podcast site you can think of, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and any other ones that I cannot think about. Just search our name, Voices from the Frontlines. And it means a lot that you not just go to those podcasts, but that you rate our shows and leave comments if that uh, feature is available. The more you actually interact with each podcast, the more popular and more uh, the podcast gets passed to other folks. And so, you know, this is the ongoing struggle with our wonderful readers and listeners. Is, um, Channing and I spend 70, 80 hours a week, we really do, fighting the police in the schools, fighting the MTA's attacks on black passengers, trying to defend the rights of the people in Africa, dealing with vaccine imperialism. I mean, every day we probably call each other around seven or eight or nine and say, all right, what are we doing today? What are the fights we have? And then we we have other people. 
my dream for Voices from the Front Lines would be more of an activist organizing listenership who would say, Eric at the Voices from the Front Lines, Eric at Voices from the Front Lines dot com. I heard the thing about women's abortion rights. Yes, we should all do more. Uh, here would be a really good guest. Uh, I'm going to get this podcast out. I'm going to have 10 friends come to my house and we'll do a house party or a Zoom party. But it would be great if we could feel some more organizing energy from you all. We love you dearly, but you could do more. And with that, what and, time we got? And that said, we will have all of the links for all of our calls to action on the website. As you heard today, there was also a conversation around closing 10 prisons, which ended with the very controversial question of how are we really going to close 10 prisons? That comes with a few calls to action as well. And so we want you to go to voicesfromthefrontlines.com now to go look at those calls to action. Could you tell me what is the main thing Curb is asking for right now? The biggest thing that is coming up right now is actually a statewide thing, which is on Wednesday. They're actually going to go to the Capitol to call on Gavin Newsom to reframe his budget to actually close and announce more closures of prisons. Um, and then there's local actions, like there's actions around actually closing Men's Central Jail um, that I'll share as well. All right, everybody. Well, I'm exhausted just listening to all the things we got to do, but I hope you've enjoyed the show. I want to say again, you know, that, you know, I was raised by a great mom, and I remember, I'm trying to be very careful, but when... We moved to the suburbs. My mom said, you know, because we'd been in Brooklyn where if my father went to work, my mom would stick her head out and there'd be 40 women screaming and yelling at their kids. And you walk, there would be a community, right? Then she, we moved to Valley Stream, Long Island, and she had a house with no neighbors, to, to, you know, and no life. And she said, you know, I'm not saying, but I wonder if I was sent here to be put in prison. Mm. You know, that now what do I do? I have a house in the middle of nowhere. And I wish I could go back to the city. So what I'm getting to is if the house is a prison and if many marriages are a prison and if women are imprisoned inside the nuclear family, then we have to have a prisoner's rights campaign to get women to have abortion rights and a prisoner, you know, and really say that we have to fight for the prisoners inside the nuclear family as well. So you take care, everybody. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines. See you next Tuesday at 3. We're going to have something great for you. Definitely going to have some very practical steps on what do we do about Roe versus Wade. And we're going to have some, hopefully, people on who are there to put pressure on the Democratic Party on those subjects. Take good care of yourselves. A life that's full of travel each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did my way. Yes, regrets. I've had a few, but then again. Too few to mention I did 
what I had to do And saw it through without exemption I planned each chart across Each careful footstep along the byway Yeah, oh, much more 